Well, hello, everybody. Uh, let's see. The date is, I'll lean back here a little bit. The get my mic set up. You know, I should have done this beforehand, but I didn't because I'm a pro. What's up? It is, let's see here. All right. The date, Wednesday, the 26th of October, 2016. This is the Promotional Mar Practice live chat here on MMA Fighting. I am your host of this podcast, Luke Thomas. Uh, today on the podcast, show, whatever, we will talk about, let's see, John Jones and his tainted supplement excuse, to the extent you believe it or don't, uh, Tim Kennedy having to shower, <laughs> having to is a strong word, but anyway, he did in fact shower in front of a USADA rep, which is just, I mean, unbelievable. Uh, Tim Kennedy is hilarious. Um, let's see, you're right, Faber's retiring, we're not too, too far away from the next UFC show, uh, that being a UFC fight night what 97 the one in mexico and uh and a whole lot more so um happy to take your questions on all those things and comments on all those things and everything else as well you can do that in the comment section at uh mma fighting where this video here is embedded so thank you so much for watching um folks were asking i got the new google pixel um i don't know what to say about it as a quick review of it because i got a lot of people on twitter being like oh how was the phone I had the Galaxy Note 4 before, and I'm one of these kinds of people who gets a new phone every two years. I think like most people are that way, basically. I guess some people just pay the whatever cost it is and get a new one whenever they want, or they just you know buy it outright. But I'm I'm the kind that waits every two years. So like for me, I don't even know how to properly evaluate this phone because I was using a like two-year-old technology, which in cell phone years is like dog years, right? So two years is like 14 years, it feels like. I mean, it's just a quantum leap in technology. I love it. Um, the battery life is incredible. The pictures are absolutely amazing. Having that unlimited storage on uh, Google Photos directly is is obviously quite handy. Um, it just the, the the user interface is really simple. I like everything being on the right side. So there's your power button. There is your uh, volume. Let's see if it works here. Okay, Google, and then it fires it up. You know that's kind of interesting as well. Um, the assistant, well, this, the assistant's not that great, but it can be a little bit helpful. But in any case, uh, I got more data now too, so I don't know what to tell you. All I can say is, if you were using a phone that, and I had the stylus, of course, with the Galaxy Note Four, but if you if you were asking me about like what kind of user experience am I having with the Google Pixel, an incredible one. Like it's the best phone I've ever had. If you were like it's too thick, I'm like only a moron who's been updating. Well, the iPhone 6s has the Snapdragon, you know, processor. A little bit faster than the previous one. It's like, okay, I haven't had a new phone in two years. All I can tell you is this is a remarkable achievement in human technology. All right, with that out of the way, let's get to uh, today's live chat questions, which of course you can find on MMA Fighting. All right, here we go. First one, I have not reviewed these yet, so this should be fun. Oh, some of them I reviewed. Uh, the bad boy versus the bad guy. Luke, Tito Ortiz versus Chael Sonnen was announced last week for Bellator 170 in January of 2017. Okay, both Ortiz and Sonnen seem to be mirror images of each other from different eras in terms of fighting style and promotional finesse. It's not quite right. A fight between two of the most prolific trash talkers in the history of the sport is sure to garner monster ratings for Bellator. Question, how do you think Tito and Chael respectively affected the sport of MMA and how do you see the fight between the two going? It is not true that they are mirror images of each other. Tito had a bit of a big mouth certainly during his run, but Tito was seen as a force of nature during his early UFC period. Uh, of course, he uh, 
earn the title and, and maintain it for quite some time now as the game caught up to him obviously the, you know the rest of the story but it it's not true like if you were uh if you were watching the sport back when Tito Ortiz was relatively new um you know he was considered to be a a formidable task uh and the very best that the division had to offer and he had a certain way to market himself with this persona the Huntington Beach bad boy but it's a little bit different, right? He was married to this idea that this was a guy of considerable achievement and skill. Uh, Sonnen was a guy who had a lot of skill, but had a bit more of a, you know, um, pick up your lunch pail and clock in at work kind of skill set. Like you knew what he was going to do. He's going to take you down and grind on you. Um, and you can say, well, didn't Tito just get in people's guards and hammer him? Right. But at that time, that was considered fairly revolutionary. Um, he was doing things that were, I mean, he was advancing ground and pound beyond the Mark Coleman uh, era. Uh, he has created a sort of science of how to work within someone's guard to absolutely just butcher them. You know, he was he, he had evolved the game a little bit to some extent. I want to call him an innovator necessarily, but he's certainly part of that process of progression. Sonnen was merely more of a guy who sort of stripped down all the, he's sort of like a lesser Demi and Maya in a way, right? Like, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And he had some, obviously, some pretty significant effect of it when it came time to win titles and beat the real guys. Um, obviously, he fell a little bit short. So it's not, both both from their persona, where one was sort of this, more of this bizarre circus act, second career kind of thing, um, and both from their abilities, at least how they were at their high watermarks, very, very different. Okay, but maybe they've come full circle in a way, right? To some extent, anyway. Uh, do you think Tito and Chael respectively affected this? How do you think they expected the sport of MMA, and how do you see the fight between the two going? As I mentioned, we've already sort of discussed Tito's contributions. Chael was a guy who really sort of reaffirmed what um, the value and necessity, frankly, of self-promotion was. Also, I think... You know, I, I said he was a lesser Demi and Maya, but that's not an insult. Like, there is something to be said for stripping away things you just know you're not that great at and just doing the things you're really good at it and using that to best effect. Like, do we think if Sonnen tried to be more well-rounded, it would really be better for him? I don't know. It maybe worked for other guys who moved away from the wrestling base, but some guys just don't really necessarily have it in them either through desire or ability. And so just sort of sticking to the thing you've been working on for um, not really your entire adult life, but your entire, entire you know, adolescent pre-adolescent life uh that that's that that doesn't seem to be all that crazy if you can really make it work um i think his contribution was just like shedding light on the possibility of of what can be done through self-promotion frankly what the mma fan base can be interested in to what extent self-promotion can further one's career um and, you know, I think he makes the conversation about, like, what MMA is a little bit more difficult. If a guy like that can earn opportunities, yes, within cage achievements, no doubt about it. But nevertheless, combined with this uh, charismatic personality, however artificial, it, it, it sort of question, makes you question exactly what what is MMA's appeal to its audience. Like, for those who watch it, what are they watching for? Um, I think he sort of muddied the waters there a little bit in ways that maybe they're already muddied, but he at least held a mirror or shed a light on it, right? Everyone use the metaphor. So, so that's what I would say. Um, boy, that first exchange on TV, <laughs> I thought Chael was basically fine. Look, he had a bunch of rehearsed lines. I didn't quite get the size 52 stupid thing, but everything else was fine about the, you know, his car getting repossessed. That was funny. 
but he basically like it didn't really matter what Tito said. He was just going to deliver his lines and let it be. Uh, okay, uh, and then Tito just you know was one of those Seraldo Babalu moments. Remember that from Affliction? I'm here with Seraldo Babalu. It's like I don't even know who that is. I know who Honato Seral is. I don't know who Seraldo Babalu is. Um, but in any case, uh, but you know what? It's going to work because everyone was talking about it. It was like the kind of thing you share for cringeworthiness, but it's still something you share. You know, it's going to be free on TV. Like, people are going to watch that, you know. There's no way people are going to miss that. Chelsea versus Tito Ortiz on free TV. It's like, why not? Did Tito have found anything less intimidating to crush than an empty juice container? It only makes the tiniest bit of sense if you sponsored by Juicy Juice, in which case the genius product placement would obviously be someone else's idea. I love how they're acting like they're in the middle of studio, but they put three different backdrops, one for each. Yeah, that was all satellite. That whole bit where they were like, that was a little weird, you know, a little, a little bizarre, but it's Bellator, man. I mean, they just signed Halleck Gracie for crying out loud. I saw that and I was like, really? Okay. Uh, is going to dominate him. Also, was the juice box a steroid reference? That's my understanding. Yeah. You know, you're a juice box jail. It's like, okay. He always likes these props. Do you guys remember before the uh, Schlamenko fight where he had the, he goes, I like to have this thing. We Back in my day, we called it a rag doll. It's like, well, they call that in everyone's day, but okay. He's like, I got a rag doll and I like to shake it. You remember that before the Schlamenko fight? And everyone had sort of counted Tito out and he goes and then runs over Schlamenko. But, uh, but yeah, he likes props for some reason. It's, maybe, you know, maybe you need props if like, Making it from the beginning to the end of a conversation or a sentence, really, even is sometimes um, a bit of a challenge. All right, true or false? Since Dana White said GSP won't be fighting Michael Bisping at 206, GSP will probably be fighting <laughs> Michael Bisping at UFC 206. You know, the funny part about this is like everyone that seems to, or at least a, a significant portion of the MMA fan base, appears to have come around to the idea that Dana White is a promoter. But this has been true for years. Like, He's been doing this kind of thing for a long time. I don't quite understand why it took this long for the fan base uh, to come around on the idea that this he was capable of this sort of thing. Partly because he has to. I, I actually sort of sympathize to a degree. And partly because he chooses to. But I, I, I it's funny. I mean, no, I don't look. The, I think it was Mookie Alexander on Twitter who pointed out that you can get like uh, like nearly cage side seats for two hundred eighty five dollars. There's no way. They're putting St. Pierre on that and then all of a sudden just changing ticket prices. It's not going to happen. I mean, they're eating a loss as it stands. If they've already listed it, people are already buying it. Um, no, they're not going to do that. They're going to, they're going to, you know, whatever else their issues with St. Pierre is, they intend to make money off of him. So, no, I don't think that's going to happen. But they're probably putting some kind of, I mean, I, I don't know to what extent this is actually Zuba trying to put public pressure on him. Maybe it is. But the thing about Dan is it's like, do you remember when uh, Tito fell out of the Ultimate Fighter and the Dana White lied on the record? about the replacement with Rich Franklin, like literally lied in an interview about it and then had no remorse about it. It was like, if you didn't from that day just decide that you had to be extraordinarily careful with everything he said, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you know, uh, Cody Garbrandt should have fought a couple more top 10 fighters before taking on someone like Dominic Cruz. I'm afraid that's probably true, but you have to admit 
whether you agree that Cody Gar- I mean, I'll say true, but a couple of important caveats, right? Number one, you have to admit that Cody Garbrandt's power is fight-changing in an instant, and that makes this at least early going of the fight really exciting, right? And two, even if you agree that he should have fought um, – well, if you agree that he should have fought somebody else, uh, that doesn't really. The issue with TJ Dillashaw is just difficult. Is what I'm trying to get across because you can say, well, on, on his own terms, is Cody Garbrandt deserving? And then you can have a debate about that. I think the answer is probably not, although it's an exciting fight. But the issue with TJ Dillashaw is just what do you do with him one way or the other? If you were going to give it to him, okay, what well, are you going to give it to him? And if you weren't going to give it to him, what are the reasons why you're not going to give it to him? Just because the Garbrandt fight's more exciting? I suppose I can understand that. But, man, that guy had a pretty sterling resume. You know, I I, I feel bad for him. I do. Uh, not that I'm in any way upset at the Garbrandt fight. I, I'm as excited about it as you are. I like Cody Garbrandt a lot. I like Dominic Cruz a lot. I think in the early going, it's going to be really interesting to see how that goes. You know, Dominic Cruz, I think, has the very exact style necessary to beat Cody Garbrandt but if you slip up even a little bit he's going to uh he's going to send some hammers down raining from the the heavens and it will not be pretty for you so that will be a fun fun thing to watch plus you know to what extent you know we never we never really think about this but to what extent are the mind games of Dominic Cruz everyone's like oh the mind games of Conor McGregor okay they're pretty good but Dominic Cruz plays them as well um, he does those kinds of things, and to what extent he can show how much there's a di- Barbus is here, how much there's a distance between uh, himself and Garbrandt. Uh, in, in terms of that, like not only are you, from a maturation standpoint, with your technical skill set, not ready for this moment, but um, up here you're not ready for the big shot opportunity. Or maybe Garbrandt comes out and shows us that he was ready for all of it. it it's it's look, it's an exciting fight. There's no two ways about it. Um, it's just that there's a cost to be paid for doing those kinds of things, and 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 I, I feel bad for TJ Dillashaw. Uh, a well-conditioned Cain Velasquez probably beats Fabricio Verdun by unanimous decision in a three-round fight. You know, I agree with that. I, I agree with that. But I have to say, you would be surprised the number of fighters who have told me off the record they think Verdun's going to beat him again the same way, or relatively the same way. You know, that they feel like, yeah, it's probably true that um, – the altitude and the time off really affected Velasquez, but basically Verdum's just better. And I certainly believe Verdum's good, and I believe that Verdum is capable of beating just about anybody. I don't know. I'm with you a little bit if that's what you're asking. I, I, I don't know. I sort of lean Velasquez. Maybe I'm crazy. Given the nature of the Nevada Athletic Commission, they are likely to throw a hefty suspension and fine at John Jones. Are they likely to throw one? Well, Pat Lundvall won't be there. Her last day is the day of John Jones's USADA arbitration. So, could they replace her with somebody worse? Hard to imagine who that could be outside of um, the Dark Lord Satan himself. Um, are they likely to do it? It's certainly possible. Are they likely? I will say no, but I, they're such a wild card, man. They're such a wild card, but you should read Eric McGrocken's post. I won't get into the weeds here. It's on concurrent jurisdiction. Um, I think it's sort of the basic argument is that if USADA renders a punishment, let's say six months from time 
initially. So back in July of, of the positive test up until what would that be? You know, so August, September, October, November, December, January. So January ish um, that through this idea of concurrent jurisdiction, uh, the Nevada Athletic Commission should essentially honor that. Um, we'll see. We'll see if that happens, but I encourage you to read that post. It's on uh, combatsportslaw.com. Give it a look. Based on Fedor's last fight, even a diminished Bigfoot Silva would beat him again. No. Well, no. Well, <laughs> uh, no. I say no. I say false. Gugard Musasi will get revenge on Uriah Hall when the rematch goes down in Belfast. True. Stipe Miocic is a better fighter of the year candidate than Michael Bisping, given the respective wins in 2016. Ooh. Hmm. So that might be true based on the way in which you frame it, but um, Michael Bisping might get it because the totality of his story to this moment is more compelling. So if you just start it at January 1st, 2016, I can see the argument for that. And frankly, that's that's what fighter of the year means, right? Like from that day forward, who had the best year or did the most or accomplished great things. Um, but it's, it's hard to divorce Bisping's accomplishment from the greater career trajectory that he had. Um, also, you know, coming in on short notice and being Rockhold was pretty impressive too, right? He didn't merely take the title from Rockhold in one round. He did it on extraordinarily short notice. I went to Chipotle. I got my double chicken, no rice, beans, peppers and onions, right? Uh, did I get, oh, got a little bit of guac today and then uh, hot and mild and then lettuce. Called it a day. Um, it's Coke Zero in there. Uh, okay. But, you know, um, so let's say they're competitive. Maybe you want to lean Stipe for the Fighter of the Year uh, award. I, I, don't, I don't think it's crazy at all. But Michael Bisping's achievements this year, they mean so much given what happened in all the years prior. And I just feel like that narrative weighs so heavily upon him uh, in a good way in this particular case that uh, it's, it's just so hard to divorce that and divorce the two. Um it's better for a fighter to have a camp, a excuse me, it's better for a fighter to have a training camp built solely around them instead of being a part of a large elite team. Uh, I had a conversation with King Mo about that this week, and the basic conclusion I come to is that it entirely depends on the person. Uh, I don't think that there is one system that necessarily proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's better, but uh, there is a lot of, it, it's, I do think a lot of fighters are in the wrong situation. That I can say. World Series of Fighting is losing so much money that they'll be defunct within the next year. I, I'm surprised they're still around, to be honest. Um, they get bitter at <laughs> they get bitter at bloody elbow, but those guys over there are just doing their job, man. Paul Gift, at MMA Analytics, and I mean, I, I can't even keep track of the lawsuits. I don't know to what extent they're frivolous, but th if they are even remotely correct, it is a project of. Uh, I mean, it is a tire fire over there. Uh, extraordinary dysfunction behind the scenes, not merely monetarily either. Um, you know, and all indications are that Ray Suffo is a great guy. Um, and so I, I certainly don't want any of the negative things that have or could happen to World Series of Fighting that aren't necessarily his doing to reflect poorly upon him. Um, I think Ray Suffo, from every indication, is that he's a, he's a true stand-up guy. But it's, it's a tire fire. Uh, is Tyrone Woodley 
Jesus, I can't read today. If Tyron Woodley really thinks that Sage Northcutt is a better version of Wonder Boy, he'll realize how wrong he is at UFC 205. Yeah, I didn't quite understand that one either. Uh, Sage certainly is a talented guy, right? We can all agree with that. Is he a better version of Wonder Boy? Mm, I'm not sure I understand that. Now, I do think training with Sage is probably helpful. I think he's probably learning some things that are preparing him to fight Wonder Boy that Sage can give him that other training partners probably can't. But, uh, <laughs> and also, just to be clear, Sage doesn't have to be better than Wonder Boy for Sage to teach Woodley enough things for it to matter in the fight, right? Um, you don't necessarily have to train, you know. Uh, like, okay, so for example, uh, how about this? If you're going, if you're in jujitsu and you want to go compete against Marcelo Garcia in his prime, now that was very difficult to do, but let's say it was in the open division, so you had a chance, you know, even um, Robert Drysdale Anaconda choked uh, Marcelo Garcia, right? Robert Drysdale could train with like Bill the Grill Cooper and get a lot out of it in preparation for Marcelo Garcia. Does that make sense? Like, Bill the Grill Cooper is not as good as Marcelo Garcia by any measurement, but that doesn't mean that Robert Drysdale, I don't know that he trained with Bill Cooper. I'm sort of, you know, trained with Simgo or anyone. Uh, none of those people are going to be as good as Marcelo, but clearly whoever he was training with at that time gave him enough, and of course there was a size disadvantage there, but it gave him enough to be able to anaconda choke um, Marcelo Garcia. So just to be clear about that, no, Sage Northcutt is not a better version of Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. That being said, how much has Watt Woodley benefited from that? Maybe a lot. We'll find out. Fantasy matchups. Stipe versus Cormier. Ooh. I'll go Stipe. Bisping versus Wonderboy. That's a tough one. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Jesus, that's a tough one. Wonder Boy? I don't know. Aldo versus Barboza. Ooh, Barboza's too big. Lawler versus Nate Diaz. Lawler's too big. Dillashaw versus Mighty Mouse. I would love to see that. God damn, I would love to see that. I don't know what the answer to that is, but I would love to see that. Probably Dillashaw, but Larkin versus Gunnar Nelson. Ooh, I'll say Larkin only because of the takedown defense. Superboy versus Bektich. I'll say Bektich for now, but that's a tough one. That's a very tough one. Let's see. Okay, people are sending me weird-ass emails. All right. Here we go. TJ Dillashaw, the third wheel. Hey, Luke. With Dominic Cruz, Cody Garbrandt being officially announced, co-main event UFC 207, December 30th. That's gonna, I'm going to be there. Where do you see TJ Dillashaw go from here? Is it wise to wait for the winner, or should he take a dangerous fight with John Lineker in the meantime? I don't see how Dillashaw can wait. The Lineker, Someone says the Lineker fight makes no sense, not for TJ and not for the UFC. What happens if somehow Lineker wins? You can't give the guy a title shot in fear he misses weight as he does in nearly 50% of his fights. Caraway should be the better option since he's safer fight for Dillashaw, and he's also trying to push his name into the title picture. Let me see who is available, because uh, 
It's not quite clear. All right. So you've got Lineker, Aston Sao, he already beat. You've got Jimmy Rivera. I guess you could do a Dillashaw Rivera fight, but then you've got Caraway, Garbrandt, Faber, Sterling. Boy, we never got that Faber versus Dillashaw fight, huh? Uh, and I think Sterling's got a fight coming up. Um, Dodson just lost. Maybe there's no way Dillashaw. I mean, Dillashaw has everything to lose in a Dodson rematch, but that would be kind of interesting. I don't really know what they're going to do with Dillashaw. I, 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 like I said before, I get it, man. Cody Garbrandt versus Dominic Cruz is, is a sensational scrap. It's good for a lot of reasons. Um, not really the narrative behind it, but the narrative individually of their career arcs. Um, that the styles in which they match up, I think that technically Garbrandt is overmatched, but athletically the things and the power that that Garbrandt possesses really is just such a game changer and such a ability to throw a wrench in any in, in anyone's plans, you know, that he is it's 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 a he's a force of nature, and so uh, for all those reasons I like it, but it really leaves Dillashaw in an unenviable position. He is already the top contender. What does he do? Wait and then not get the kind of practice or money? Doesn't get paid if he doesn't fight. Um, he has to take a risk in some ways. The Caraway one makes a lot of sense, but I don't know if I make. I mean, maybe Caraway, maybe Caraway would take it because of the position, the coveted position that Dillashaw currently occupies. I don't know. It's a, it's it's. I feel I feel bad for TJ Dillashaw. If you're the number one contender, what else are you supposed to do? You know. And when you lost, and then you fought the guy who was number two, and you beat him soundly. It's, it's, you know, shades of Jose Aldo a little bit. Uh, Mike Goldberg. With the massive amount of cuts that happened this week, how is Mike Goldberg... <laughs> how is Mike Goldberg still the pay-per-view announcer? Do you think there's more cuts to happen? I find it hard to believe that Mike will be staying in such a role. He's seen thousands of fights and hasn't really improved over the years. Not only has he not improved, he's regressed. You know, I, this is one of those things where it's like, what is your priority? Uh, for me, getting face the pain off the broadcast is a much bigger priority than Mike Goldberg at this point because Joe Rogan is still good enough where what I've basically surmised is that the hardcore fans are kind of annoyed by Mike Goldberg, but the casuals, A, only re really listen to Joe Rogan or B, just tune Mike Goldberg out one way or another because maybe they're in a sports bar or they're with a group of friends or something like that. Like He's just not really a liability other than it doesn't sound very good as a broadcaster, but like he's not, he's not, you know, he's fine. Basically, he's, he's fine. Uh, face the pain to me is like, <laughs> I mean, it's like, now, if someone said, get rid of Mike Goldberg or, uh, you know, lose face the pain forever, you got to pick one. You know, certainly I don't want Mike Goldberg to lose his job, but that is that is an equivalent of Sophie's choice right there. But I would still go with I would still hand over my child to face the pain uh, to the Germans, right? I would I would I don't know I don't know how anyone can think that that is a good thing in 2016 that you have this bro down music that is for 13 year olds popping pimples in the mirror. And they're mad at mom and dad, and they just want to rage because they don't know what to do with their hormones uh, and their morning wood, right? That's they're just angry at the world, and you know the kind of kid who just sort of grumbles and and shows disrespect to his parents when they ask him to rake the yard, even though of course they're providing a food you know for him and a roof over his head and and a, probably a nice Mac laptop. That that's who that song is for, and it was for them in an era. That's what twenty years old. It feel. I mean, it could not be less appropriate at this juncture for this product. It doesn't need to be there. It is such an eyesore, an ear sore. 
And I just, I cannot believe, I cannot believe that there isn't people with pitchforks and raised fists in the air outside of the T-Mobile arena being like, please stop hurting us. Please stop, please stop hurting us. Please stop hurting my ear. It's, it, I mean, I can't, I can't believe this has to be explained, but here we are. And it does. Sorry, thing. Maybe a lot. It's just hard to know. But I think Todd's point was, I think, quite correct. There is a little bit of a gamble involved there. Uh, I think I'm happy with most of those strategic decisions up to a point. I made this point before. In an abstract sense, some kind of contraction I feel like I'm very happy with. But the specifics of what that contraction looks like, that's where this debate is going to be uh, had. Right? Simply saying, oh, we're going to have less of a presence in foreign markets doesn't really tell you a lot. How much less? In what way less? For how long? Um, are there plans to maintain enough of a presence that if things improve, you up the presence? Like, could we get back to more shows eventually? Like, what does all this mean? And there's just way too many, um, way too many unknowns at this point to, to say. But I think Todd's point generally about short versus long term is is worth considering. Y'all love Mike Perry, Platinum Mike Perry. What are your thoughts on this guy, both in the ring and out? I find him to be a fascinating dude, and he's knocking folks out. Am I a donk for this? You see him competing for the title next year? I don't know about the title, but um, anything's possible. Here's the thing about uh, Mike Perry. Mike Perry is, I don't know him. Uh, he seems to come from what you want to call a hard scrabble background, right? Uh, you know. Guy's on probation for bur burglary. Uh, <laughs> he is clearly not in a, being, making some appropriate life choices. But he also appears to have, I, I don't know his family, but he appears to come from a situation where uh, maybe he didn't have all the advantages that some of us have enjoyed throughout life. But I will say this, <laughs> whether, whether that's true or not, he is one of those guys where uh, I don't know what his ceiling is necessarily, but his floor is high. Right, born fighter. That's that's just what he is. One of these guys who has no problem knuckling up. And I think I bet you, I bet you, if you asked him, he's been in a lot of you know street altercations before, and I bet he figured out pretty quickly he was good at it. He had a natural knack for it. He has big power. He can take a huge shot, and he has no fear, no fear, none whatsoever. Um, so the question is when you get guys like that, people think, oh, they must have a really high ceiling, but the truth is it's a different makeup that takes you to the other elite levels. What I think is fair to say, and he may reach that. I don't know, but what I think is fair to say is that his, his floor, the very worst of him is naturally very high relative to some of his peers. You know, I think the natural floor, uh, for someone like him is, you know, if you can punch hard and you can take a good shot and you look pretty athletic and you don't have any problems going out there and slinging, mm, that's pretty good. You know, that's a good base to build off of. That's what it is. It's a base. But guys like that who are born fighters, yeah, you can do a lot with them. Um, but for me, it's like not a question so much of his ceiling, more, more, more his basement, his floor. But, you know, if you're out there on probation for burglary, I mean, you got to get your life together, you know. Follow up, Q. What's your prediction for Juban versus Perry fight in Sacramento? I don't know because Juban's a tough guy as well, right? And he's got a lot of skills. I mean, skills win fights. Tough guys win fights, mm, but so do skills. And I don't know. Um, 
you know, you see Joban go down against a guy like Albert Tumanov, and it's hard to shake that from you. But then he went out there and put a beating on Bilal Muhammad. So I don't know. I think I think Juban is the better striker, and I think that Perry is the tougher guy to put away, and that makes for an exciting combination, which is roughly what you saw with the Danny Roberts fight, but I think Juban is better than Danny Roberts. Um, so we'll see. So we'll see. Someone says, I recently watched all of Mike Perry's pro fights, and he has improved a huge amount in just a few fights. It's true. Like, he gets better quickly. I'm not here to prepare him, or I'm not here to do, declare him some kind of inevitable title challenger. I think that's getting a bit premature, but, you know, if you just heard him talk, you'd be like, eh, I don't know about this guy, but I, I don't think that's a fair way to assess um, his upside necessarily. Ultimate Fighter 24, which of the remaining fighters do you think will be the toughest fight for Mighty Mouse? Well, I have to be, I have to confess that I have enjoyed what I've watched, but since I went on vacation, I haven't, I think I've only caught up a little bit with the show. I'm trying to remember what the last fight I saw was. I don't know. So all the raving I did about early on, I don't take any of it back. I, it, the fights were great, but I, it just couldn't. And I, I'm happy to go watch them now. That's all my DVR. It's not an intentional thing. I've avoided it, but nothing has compelled me to go and see what's on my dvr um i don't have anything bad to say about the i mean like you guys know all my feelings about it but for some reason i kind of just lost interest after vacation i don't know what says it could be tim elliott yeah maybe All right, let's get to this Tim Kennedy thing. Uh, okay, here's the question. Tim Kennedy. Tim has been a strong anti-PED voice in the MMA community and has had multiple run-ins with USADA. That's true. He has seemed to criticize the invasiveness of the USADA process, talking about watching him shower or his holding up the agent with a gun episode, yet also discusses how fighters that train away from the U.S. are coming out of camps looking much different and that this is a way to cheat the testing system. Many have also pointed out that Kennedy during deployment is away from the system, so his criticism seems hypocritical. To some, it seems like he also wants less invasive testing at times, but in other scenarios, more invasive following and testing. What is your take on his stances on these matters? I, I think that is actually a pretty fair assessment of things, right? On the one hand, he definitely doesn't want people using PEDs. On the other hand, this is a guy who is very much one of these uh, individual liberty uh, folks and you know the kind who is like I want to have my own property I want to be able to protect myself and my family and my assets and I don't want the government or any kind of invasive figure too much in my life and so there is this uh, unavoidable clash there of uh, ideals running into each other right um, so I think you're getting some of that I, I want to just speak if I can a little bit about what happened at that um, incident. Of course, I wasn't there. I can only go by based on what he described, but if you ever heard it go something like this, that he went to practice, MMA practice, remember he's fighting Rashad Evans at UFC 205. He goes home to shower. Uh, a USADA agent was either there to greet him or soon after he got home before he had a chance to jump in the shower and says, uh, well, because you worked out and that probably affects any number of uh, measurables in your blood, we have to wait an hour before we can take your blood. And Tim says, well, I, I just worked out. I need to shower. And, and uh, 
these other guys are like I'm not sure what to tell you. I mean, I can't tell you you can't shower, but I have to keep my eyes on you at all times. And if you talk to people, once a USADA agent shows up to wherever you are and identifies themselves, you have to be in their sight at all times until they have completed the process of sample collection. Right? That's how it, that's how it works. And so Tim says, okay, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to not shower. I'm going to shower. You can just watch me, which is... Only a wild man would uh, do something like that. But let's sort of break down the the arguments about this for just a moment. Um, first of all, the idea that he should just not shower. Only someone, I mean, literally a white belt with three months or less experience would know automatically that's not a tenable position. It is not the case that every time you roll or every time you get on the mats, you must shower in bleach right away or you're going to get ringworm or staff, but they also know that if you don't maintain proper habits of hygiene, you're going to get ringworm or staff. Those mats are filled with funk in ways you cannot possibly imagine. If you ever go to any well-run jiu-jitsu gym, they clean their mats at least two, sometimes three times a day with both disinfectant, hot water, and bleach. Um, they'll usually do it in the morning. They'll usually do it in the mid-afternoon before kids' class and after the morning sessions, and then after, of course, the evening classes. Um, it's it's a laborious process, and you have to do it because otherwise people will get sick. And you have seen people pull out of fights with staph infections. It's not a joke. And as we approach this post-antibiotic era, maintaining proper hygiene is not, it's not something you can just blow off. Was Tim Kennedy going to get staph if he didn't shower that time? I don't know. But that's not really a risk you should feel like you can run just on account of some guy showing up at your door trying to get your blood okay um and then folks say well he could have just showered in front of him just deal with it you're in the military just deal with it or put on a pair of shorts so this is this is where the argument ultimately arrives which is um what is the dividing line that athletes are allowed to enjoy between privacy that that usada has a right to invade in the name of anti-doping versus the kind of privacy that is uh inviolable like the kind of process that they are entitled to keep no matter what. And the basic answer is when you ask someone in the anti-doping community or really any sort of person who supports these, like just get some, just shower in front of them, what you ultimately find the answer is there is no answer. There is no rational basis for any of this. The only answer is, here's the truth about anti-doping. People talk about, oh, um, you know, if you go to a foreign country, you could do that because USADA can't reach the far, the far regions of, you know, uh, Uzbekistan or something. And there's probably some truth to that. It's harder to get out there if you're on some remote jungle or island or desert or whatever, whatever terrain you're in that's far away from uh, civilized society. There is some truth to that. Here is the truth. The only real way to fully beat anti-doping, and even then it's not fully beat it, but let's say 99% is to have surveillance at all times. At all times. 24-7, 365. That is the only way to beat it. That's the only way to beat it. And you might say, well, that's crazy, but that's what's required. What's required to beat doping are incredibly invasive um, encroachments on people's lives, both financially, both in terms of their own privacy and any number of other challenges that go along with it. So like this whole idea of, well, um, 
I, there's so many different arguments I have to sort of articulate here. The I, the point is this: if you ask someone by what basis Usad is allowed to do this, what's the rational argument for invading someone's privacy to this extent, where you have to shower your genitalia in front of a stranger? What they'll basically tell you is that's what's required to beat anti-doping. But the answer is that's not really enough, now is it? Just showing up one time, maybe four times, six times a year, that's not really enough to beat anti-doping. Guys, I have still, as Tim articulated, still have plenty of time. What you really need, what you really need to beat it are incredible financial resources and a panopticon of surveillance. That is what you need to make sure you have a clean sport. Otherwise, you don't. You leave a little bit of a crack and mice are going to run through it. That is how it works. There is never going to be an incentive to not use unless you are under constant surveillance. And that we're talking about like uh, extraordinary measurements. And you might say, well, look, guys who grew up on sports teams, they don't mind showering in front of each other. Okay, I mean, that, that seems like a... A, a reasonable thing to say. I, I can understand that. I was in the military. Same thing. I did that. I was on sports teams growing up. I, yeah, sure. Okay, I've done that. But that's not the argument. The argument is, what does USADA not have a right to do? What do they not have a right to do? And the answer is, apparently, they can do whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. The, ar the only argument about this whole privacy is basically what they can get away with. That's it. In Australia, they have a right to see for athletes who are in these whereabouts programs who is sending you mail and where you're sending it to. They get to look at your mail records. What? Okay. If the argument is, well, this is what's required for anti-doping, that's not enough. Just showing up to Tim Kennedy's door eight times a year and watching him shower. That's not enough. If you really want to cheat, that's not enough. Flat, plainly. And there is no rational basis. The only basis that the anti-doping uh, crowd wants to give you is that whatever we can get away with, whatever amount of money we have and whatever people will basically stomach, they'll basically stomach showing up and watching you get naked because they're like, eh, it's invasive, but I want to be a pro. I want to show that I have this you know, I live a clean life and, and I haven't done anything. They'll tolerate that. But rationally, the only basis of this is that it's it's an encroachment that gets us closer to anti-doping that you will stomach. But if you stomached more, they would just take more. Because what they're doing right now, testing you 8, 10, 12 times a month or a year, is not enough. It's not enough. It's not a clean sport. And until they have actually have full control over you, they can't ever really be sure that you're not using in any capacity. So then it leads to the question, well, if there is no rational basis other than what they can get away with without legal challenges or without some kind of fighter uprising, what is there to say, what is, what is preventing them from saying things like, you know, like Australia, we want to look at your mail. We want to look at your tax records. We want to look at what churches you go to with your whereabouts program. We want to put a GPS tracker on you. We want to know what's in your bank statements. We want to be able to read your email and you say, oh, that's crazy. Why is that crazy? How is that any less crazy than showering in front of a stranger, a stranger who you don't really know? 
Because the only thing separating that is, will we tolerate this? We may not necessarily tolerate that, or there might be some legal challenges. You keep giving rights away, and they will just encroach on them further and further and further and further and further. And don't think for a second that when this whereabouts program that may have started back in 2003 but was updated in 2009, there was extensive uproar about it. Extensive uproar. Now, the community in sporting generally has mixed opinions about it. Some are in favor of whereabouts. A lot aren't. But the question is how you legally challenge some of these things. A lot of guys don't want to go through it. What does it mean if you do it? There are, there are, you know, if you at so much as raise the issue that there might be problems in the anti-doping program, you know, people reach out to me and like, you must be on testosterone. God, I wish. God, I wish I was. But I don't have the balls to pump chemicals into myself and think that's a good idea. I don't like doing that. But I also think, gee, <laughs> we're, we're really going to treat Athletes like this, and by the way, it gets even better that they're independent contractors. Wow. I mean, the gall to do to them something like this. I cannot be the only one who thinks, mm, this is a little strange. I, It is not possible to say that it's no big deal that, you get, that, a, that a stranger should be able to watch you bathe if the rational basis underpinning it is Basically, no one's challenged it in court enough. There could be more. What is what is the argument, if you're willing to allow something like that, to preventing USADA from having keys to your house? Or I mentioned before, what about the RV example? What is to prevent USADA, if they're not breaking any zoning or habitation laws, from getting an RV and parking outside of your house and living there for six months and following you when you go to a restaurant and following you when you're on vacation with your family and following you as you merely do errands throughout the day. Why not? Why not? They're not breaking any ready rules. And if we can afford it, if we can pump enough money into the program, the argument is you have not, as an anti-doping zealot, you have not created a rational basis to separate watching Tim Kennedy shower his genitalia from that. The only thing separating from that is we haven't had the gumption to try. That is it. There is no rational argument that has been offered by the whereabouts program or by USADA or by anybody else that says this kind of invasion of privacy is okay and this isn't. You know why? Because if they can take more, they will. And everyone says, if you don't have anything to hide, just you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. I have nothing to hide. Only, only, only an unthinking clown would think something like that. Yes, you do have something to hide. If you don't, send me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. I want passwords to your email accounts because I plan on sharing them with the world. I want to see your tax returns for the last 10 years. I want to know what church you go to. I want to know what malls you shop at. I want to see your tax returns. Send me the PIN numbers to your bank accounts. I won't take anything. I want to see where you shop. I want to see who you talk to on Snapchat. I want to see everything. The argument that you have nothing to hide is nonsense. Nothing to hide doesn't mean you're hiding criminal or otherwise unethical behavior. Everybody, everybody wants to keep things private. And in this era, by the way, here's another question, where you have to share all these details with you, Sada, not your tax returns, but certainly your whereabouts. Where is this information stored? You just saw this uh, Fancy Bears hack where they're letting TUEs out. Now everyone's medical information is being compromised. Well, that's not real safe by water now, is it? What about all the rest of those things? People finding out where you spend time with your family, where you go on vacation. Again, what churches you go to, what schools you attend, what schools your children attend. This information should be available to the public? I don't think so. I don't think so. Athletes are willing to tolerate this because they see it as a badge of honor. 
I have not done anything. I'm willing to share with the world. Well, if you adopt that attitude, they will keep taking freedoms until you just don't have any that you recognize left. And if you think that that if you think that is an exaggeration, go back and look at the arguments as each incremental privacy invasion has taken place. And people were raising alarms back then, but because we believe this specter of doping to be so serious that it merits essentially invading people's lives in crazy, crazy ways, like watching Tim Kennedy shower his genitalia. If that sounds normal to you, you are a zealot. Fact. That is not a normal thing in any capacity whatsoever. And frankly, that mere act, if Tim Kennedy wanted to, would not even prevent him from doping. Because the second you leave, he can book a plane to Thailand, like he said, and he could probably go get away with it. So there's a question about even the effectiveness of something like this. Here is the truth. You cannot create a system by which you're having this incredible surveillance of all these fighters in this global sport for reasons technocratic for reasons financial there is some degree of you just can't stop all of this let's create some limits to this that are both in keeping with the respect of the privacy of the athlete that are in keeping with some measure of fairness about the sport and in keeping with general health and wellness we have to, frankly i'm sorry if you want to get rid of doping from the sport you have to ruin people's lives because the, what they're doing now, while invasive, isn't even close to being enough. So please, please don't tell me this is some issue that I'm on about because I wish. But I'm not. I'm just a donk who lives in Washington, D.C., who looks at this and goes, wow, you have to shower if you want to, you know, unless you want to run the risk of staph infection or ringworm in front of a total stranger, even though you have no history of doping whatsoever and this won't really stop you if you really want to do it anyway. Huh, that seems a little weird. The solution to this? If the fighters collectively decide that this kind of uh, infringement on their privacy rights is what they want and what they agree to in a vote, then I don't have any say here. I don't have an argument here. But this was forced on them. And all the ones who chirp up about it on Twitter like, I don't mind this. Mm, I see a lot of them not chirping up. A lot of them who've never tested positive, a lot of them who get tested all the time, who have no red flags or obvious before-after USADA issues, because maybe just maybe they don't think this is particularly fair. And I definitely don't think it's fair. But if you want to give your rights away, don't, don't complain when they get taken. All right. Just please spare me the... Spare me the... I got nothing to hide. You are a liar. You are a liar. Everyone has something to hide. Everybody. And that's okay. That's that's the condition of being human. You can J-check search for new management. I heard about this. I read a recent interview with uh, Joanna Champion where she talked about all the changes in her life and something that really surprised me was how vocal she was about wanting to get a new manager who was able to get her the best amount of money as her comments before had been mostly about her desire to just be a champion of the UFC. What do you think about her frankness on the subject? And do you think there's another indication that the relationship between UFC and its top fighters is undergoing a drastic change? Well, there's no doubt about that. Fighters recognize they have more leverage than ever. Fighters recognize that the putting just the UFC brand on it may have meant a lot before. Still means a lot now, but not as much. Now it's really a function of... Um, 
who who is headlining and what kind of a star they are. I think she feels like she has a lot of value as a European fighter. I mean, we'll see how much that matters as WME makes changes, but certainly as a someone who could be a bigger star and maybe make get a bigger piece of the pie. A lot of these guys, they you know, as people come up in the world, they sign arrangements with you know helpful but maybe smaller time figures and. And they feel like once they've graduated past them, there's a question of to what extent those people can be of service. Uh, you know, I don't know her particulars, but it's not this. This seems like a very common, common tale. Thoughts on releasing that UFC fighter for turning down a fight? Sorry, I cannot remember his name at the moment, but I read that article you posted about it and couldn't believe it. Isn't that illegal? My understanding is it's illegal. Now, the fighter is Mehdi Baghdad. Um, UFC, to my knowledge, hasn't commented on it, so I'm going to decline comment until we get their side. But I don't, I don't think that's. I don't know how that's legal. If that's in fact what happened, however, there might be some other circumstances here that we just don't know. Good question. Bisping campaigning for the GSP fight. You can't blame him for wanting the biggest fights, but after the Hendo fight, don't you think Bisping should concentrate on legitimate middleweight contenders? Yeah. Yeah. I don't like that GSP fight at all. I mean, I get that we all want GSP to come back. I want him to come back. You want him to come back. Uh, but a, a champion has a responsibility to a weight class at some point. At some point, yeah. Um, and we'll all differ there, but you've got a lot of guys. I mean, you could say what you want. Oh, there was no one for Connor to fight at featherweight. After he knocked out at Jose, anyway. Okay, I, I don't, I don't agree with that, but I can see how a lot of people would. Fair enough, I won't argue it. But at middleweight, <laughs> you got Jacare, you got Rockhold, and you got Romero, you got Wyman. Yeah, a couple of those guys are going to lose, but a couple of them are going to advance, and they may be former champions. So, uh, I have a hard time, I have a hard time buying into that one. Is this the fight that two hundred six needs? I mean, two hundred six needs GSP, and no card needs this fight. I just can't help but think the middleweight division will erupt if this happens. I know Dana the Donk says it's not going to happen, but he talks more S than sense. If it does happen, would it be a catch? I just don't think it's going to happen. I think it's just too late. I really do. I don't I don't agree that it's going to happen. I could be wrong, but whatever. Fight announcements. Luke, what is the story with fight announcements nowadays? It seemed like before a fight, especially significant fights or main events, would be announced 10 to 12 weeks in advance. Nowadays, you are lucky if the fights are announced 5 to 6 weeks in advance. In advance. Do fighters not need that sort of notice for big fights, or is 5 to 6 weeks enough? 6 weeks can be enough, depending on who it is. Remember, Bisman won the title on, what, 2, 2.5? Two um, I think it's a combination of things. It's probably guys are a little bit harder to negotiate with. Um, two, maybe they try certain things and they fall through because they keep such a crazy schedule. Guys are coming and going, injured, whatever the case. And also, I think, you know, when you plan out your calendar in advance, that's not the same thing as saying, okay, who's ready? Who's ready? Let's make a fight. Where could we put that? Where you can, I mean, you see that in boxing a lot. Who do we have available? Who could they fight? Where could we put it? Let's announce that. We'll do a press tour and it sort of goes on from there. This is a little bit more of we have these dates. Let's fill that as we can. And so I think there's a little bit of playing catch-up as a consequence. UFC 209, Super Bowl weekend, wet dream. Nate Diaz versus Conor McGregor, 155 belt. 
I don't even, it doesn't even need to be for the belt, but sure, that's good. Nick Diaz versus Robbie Lawler. I feel like it needs to happen. Gilbert Melendez versus Habib Alvarez, BJ Penn, Tony Ferguson. Um, I don't know about the Gil Melendez part. Um, fancy matchup, me versus Rogan. No, thank you. Ariel versus Brian Callen. I'll leave that up to them. Uh, Uriah Faber legacy. Now that he has announced his retirement, where do you put him in WEC UFC history? Boy, this is a really complicated one. Um, Josh Gross was on my show yesterday. I thought he had some really good thoughts about it. Namely, he's one of these first guys to mold an identity. I personally find something very interesting about someone, you know, Stipe has this tie to Cleveland, and it's a big part of his personality and his identity, which I think a lot of people respond favorably to. And I respond favorably to to Faber doing that as well. Um you know, uh, carving out an identity based on a, not merely a large geographic location, but really the, the community in which you live. Um, I don't know, for something, I, f I, f I find that very appealing. We don't see a lot of that in MMA, and for the guys who do it, it feels right. Um, he was a guy who was always pleasant to work with, I can tell you from the media perspective. Um, he seemed like a team player for Zufa when he needed to be. You know, he got a lot of title shots that he didn't really, uh, I think, 0-7 um, after, after the brown loss or if you count the brown loss but you know look um i think the con uh, look okay if you want to have a larger discussion about the legacy of faber i think you can you know the pay-per-view he did with jose aldo didn't do big numbers but remember how weird it was where they had to take the make the gloves blank and they you know it was ufc presents wec aldo versus faber it was just was this weird thing where it was what could you do if the UFC was promoting this almost zombie organization? I mean, that's not what WC was, but that's the sort of arrangement that they had to work out to make that work to put them on spike and everything else. So it was super weird, and um, and um, I remember, you know, look, I remember that first WEC thirty four. Jens Pulver had. Lost to Joe Lozano. He had, he, had, he had a stint in pride that had gone up and down. Even the fight that he lost, though, against like Tekken Oregon, was like a really good fight. Um, but he had left the UFC. He had gone to Japan. He had come back. Okay, he had the bad loss to Joe Lozano, but they put him in the ultimate fighter, and then he loses to BJ Penn. Then he jumps down to WEC, and then he like 10-finger guillotines, Cub Swanson super quick, and then they put him against Uriah Faber. Guys, I remember. I can still see the commercials in my head. I remember Jens Pulver putting tennis balls under his hand and doing pull-ups on it. I remember this. I remember this so vividly. Um, and that one did like 1.5 million back in the day for versus, which was like huge at the time, even the rematch, which I think had the first Cerrone versus Varner fight only did half that number. Um, you know, so he did a lot promotionally for them, but he never really turned that corner back into a pay-per-view star. Um, uh, certainly a valuable asset to them, but not necessarily one of their bigger stars, but I just feel like, and this was Gross's point, And I think I share it that he was a guy who at least made you think that um, promoting guys of lighter weight could be possible. Maybe he wasn't necessarily the guy who could be the biggest one, but he showed you what kind of promise was there. And in times that they did, certainly it worked out. Other times they did, it didn't necessarily work out. You know, I also think the one thing about Faber, aside from all the things we've said from, about him now, he, he never gets enough credit for, is just how tough he was. Um, do you guys remember that uh, fight? You can you can put it on YouTube if you've never seen it. It's uh, Arthur Abraham versus Edison Miranda. And Abraham gets his jaw broken in the fight and just keeps fighting. And his mouth is hanging during this fight. Like, it's this insane contest. 
and he manages to keep going. And I remember in that second Brown fight, if I'm not mistaken, Faber broke both of his hands and was in there just trying to throw elbows any way he could. Uh, you know, he couldn't even lock his hands for a takedown. And uh, or in the Aldo fight when he was just getting leg kicked into into oblivion, he didn't quit. You know, maybe he should have. Maybe it would have been smarter to quit. But he didn't. Like the guy was really, really tough. And whatever else you want to say about his appeal, oh, nice sunny guy, shirtless, family barbecue, friends with everyone in the neighborhood. That's sort of the vibe he had. But man, he was a fighter's fighter too. You know, um, he was incredibly, incredibly tough. And that you see that fading a little bit. You saw that in the last cruise fight where he got dropped like that. You know, that was that's unusual for Faber. Um, he's been hurt, of course, a number of times. But man, he is resilient a resilient competitor. So if you just look at his WEC run, it was filled with a lot of promise and a lot of up and a lot of great moments, not competitively as dominant. I think as some people want to remember, obviously in non-title fights up until that Edgar fight, 18 and 0. So like he has had a really great record, but it's a tick or two under the really, truly elite guys. I think that the larger picture though, of Uriah Faber is a really, is a really strong one. Um, not merely for what he was able to accomplish, but um, what he was able to accomplish for people of similar size. And I also feel like there's a little bit of uh, innovation he doesn't get credit for. You know, creating a team built around a certain kind of guy who's a certain size and a certain style, getting these sub-lightweight, more or less, wrestle boxers and recru recruiting all of them. Remember when like Dwayne Ludwig came over to Alpha Male, what happened? A lot of their striking got better across the board. Why? Well, he's basically working with the same kind of athlete. He had this... He had this like results at going to, but yeah, I probably would. Uh, Gadelia's explanation for her loss. In a recent interview, Claudia Gadelia explained that one of the primary reasons she left her old team was that she was unhappy with how they had prepared for the uh, Ioana and Jacek fight as she felt the reason she gassed out in the fight was that they had her trained too much. The reason this took my surprise was that Gadelia's gas tank was very suspect already uh, into the fight based on previous fights where she faced hard where she faded hard towards the end and her also seeming unwillingness to give credit to Joanna about being able to exploit her weaknesses. Am I being too harsh towards Gedalia and feeling that she comes across as still being in denial over that loss? And can such an approach hinder her development as a fighter going forward? Well, I'll split the difference with you. I think there is a little bit of denial going on to your point exactly about the things Jacek is able to do. Jacek is hard to take down and she's hard to hold down. And those two things, because Gedalia really had a lot of deficiencies on the feet technically, um, really hurt her, right? She she looked good for maybe two, two and a half rounds, and after that, it was just about over, right? She couldn't do much after that, although she was pretty tough. Um, but the truth is, you kind of want fighters to be in denial a little bit. I would argue most fighters are in denial. No fighter is perfect. And some have fairly sober assessments about themselves. But like, think of Arlovsky after losing to Heratonov in Strikeforce. I thought he was done. And I thought this idea that he could rebuild himself and be something else again, I thought was crazy. It's like, th this is clearly not true. And then sure enough, man, he shows up. And, you know, he's had a little bit of mixed success of late. But um, there's no denying he had a real legitimate second chapter at heavyweight in the UFC. Totally. He absolutely did. And that is built on this bit of denial. Like, Diego Sanchez has gotten his face ripped apart and has done a lot of damage to himself, but he has a much better record than he ordinarily would because, because of that. He has incredible self-determination, and that means silencing doubt, and that means uh, focusing on strengths. And 
I agree that sometimes that can get you into trouble. I think it especially gets you into trouble when someone is at the end of their career, which is why Faber bowing out, I feel like, is the right call. He hasn't taken too much damage, and it's clear that his better days are behind him, and I think he realizes that. And for those reasons, that ability to have a sober assessment is is not an easy thing for a fighter to accept. In the case of Gedalia, um, you know, a 17-week camp is ridiculous, and we don't know what her other camps were like. Maybe she feels like... Um, not merely was this camp flawed, but the previous ones were probably pretty flawed too. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what they can do for her at Jackson's. It's an, I'm not really ready to write her off just yet, although I probably suspect you're right that there is generally, maybe she just doesn't have the cardio capacity that uh, Jacek can. But um, I also don't think that she's wrong for saying I can do a lot better than that. that again, that's what you want out of fighters. You want them to be able to say, uh-uh. Like if you if you give in to doubt, you and I might call that a very rational thing. Like I've had any number of <laughs> failures in my life, and which I am keenly aware of. And in many cases, they prevent me from doing other things that I might otherwise do. Maybe that's the right thing. Maybe it's not the wrong thing. But that's just how my mind operates. That, uh, among any other reason, I mean, there's a thousand reasons why I couldn't or shouldn't be a fighter. But that's probably the number one one. Is I actually listen to my own doubt. If you listen to your doubt enough, you are not cut out for this. So Gedalia, I can assure you, is hardly alone in uh, saying that the doubt that she experiences is not really worth taking seriously. Because if you take it seriously, you can't really will yourself to the kinds of greatness that um, people who can silence it can. It's just the reality. All right, let's go to the Twitter machine. It's now 2.15. Hey, Luke, occasionally I hear you make poker references. Do you play poker? If so, do you play on lines with friends, casinos, or... Uh, I, uh... Did the stream die? No, nope, stream was good. Uh, no, I mean, I play with friends. I don't, you know... I'm the guy who's like, do seven off-suit. I'm all in. <laughs> uh, how should us Tor Torontonians feel about the steaming pile of dog s that is UFC 206? Will the card be improved? I suspect the card will be improved marginally, but you are like in every other situation in life. This one, the next one, whether you want to buy 205, whether you want to take Uber, whether you want to take the Metro, whether you want to shop at that grocery store, whether you want to uh, tip, you have to vote with your dollars. Is it unethical to make Cyborg fight at 140 pounds just to give more of a chance for women coming up to fighter? Your stream went down. It does not appear down to me. Mine's still going. I don't know. I'm going to keep going until this says not, don't go anymore. Let's see what happens. Well, I don't know. Mine still says it's up. I don't know what to do about it. Um, let's go back to the question. I don't know if it's unethical, but I don't know how much sense it makes either. Um, but certainly is, there is a... If she agrees to it, then the ethics of it are fairly straightforward. But how much sense it makes, I don't know. Look, where is Miles Jury? So I emailed Miles Jury over the weekend, and I did not hear back. I don't know how to answer it. 
And also thoughts on Korean Superboy versus Cub Swanson. Huge, huge fight for Choi. Um, he could turn a real corner with this one if he can come out there and show something special. And, you know, Cub Swanson is a very talented fighter who I feel like has gotten a little bit more uh, careful and measured as time has gone on. But I feel like still has that capacity to to get caught in a fighter's gimmick. Um, uh, it, it, it's it's a really interesting fight. So it's a serious question. Uh, are USADA reps gender matched to the athletes, as in male get rep gets a male athlete? I would assume so, but I can't speak on that affirmatively, so I won't. Uh, let's see. True or false? Chael will go Bonner on Tito and have a masked escort follow him to the cage only to be revealed as Jenna James. Okay. Let's... Comment about Halleck joining Bellator and the Menomore situation. Yeah, that's an interesting one because... Um, I don't know about that one. Uh, so I can tell you personally, I've like I looked into this. I have spoken to schools and school owners who were part of the Bellator, excuse me, Bellator, part of the Metamorphs Challenger Series, and they were never paid. And that they had told me, uh, and I tried to contact Halleck about this, and he did not want to talk about it. I'll put it like that. Um, and um, they had insinuated that they would try to get things in writing and, and Metamorphs would resist. Um, my understanding was that he had a funder and when the funder pulled out, they had to find other sources of revenue, which is where this challenger series comes from, but that it was so poorly executed that they had to cancel events. They didn't, I can tell you people in my very school never got their refund. Um, a lot of people never got refunds and certain schools where guys had to work as volunteers, you know, either as timekeepers or refs or whatever. Um, they were never paid. So how much it, existing non-payment happened i don't know the answer to that but um to me i guess given those considerations it's not surprising that he would seek out a career in mixed martial arts but that is bellator for you i guess uh you just said you'd want to see gsp return before you said you'd like to see him stay retired what changed for you i don't know i guess i'm sort of overcome by the i don't know I don't know, somewhere along the line, it seemed a little bit more palatable based on who he could fight. If he retired and stay retired, I wouldn't care. But I guess him pitching his, I guess the whole battle to, to get like what he wanted out of this whole experience kind of put me on his side. But I don't know, it's a good question. What have you heard about a possible Fedor versus Carwin bout? I've not heard anything. And the stream is back. Okay, good. Do you think Max Holloway eventually becomes featherweight champion? I certainly think he is a possible contender for that. I don't mean in some like, oh, let's look at the rankings. I mean like, no, no, no. That's a guy who's got enough ability he could make a run for it. Max Holloway is incredibly talented. Amateur competitor suspended for four years for failed test. I don't know what that's about. I don't have time to look at it right now. If Connor beats Alvarez, would Nate Diaz have a better chance getting the title shot over Ferguson Habib? No, I don't think so. Especially if both Habib and Tony win. But you know what? Who knows? In this world, in this day and age, honestly, who knows? Who would have been your pick in Stun Gun versus Nelson if the fight wasn't canceled? Probably Nelson. Probably Nelson. 
How big of a potential 28-year-old heavyweight Justin Ledet? Wait, what? How big of a prospect is 28-year-old Justin Ledet in the UFC? Guy's got an incredible jab. I haven't seen enough from him generally all, all the way around to see how he looks, but I can tell you that his boxing is, I mean, phenomenal for the heavyweight division. If you guys never saw Justin Ledet, I think he fought on the Fight Pass portion of whatever his UFC debut was. I think it was the, I want to say it's the South Dakota card. Uh, the one with Lineker and McDonald. Um, go check that out, man. He had a piston of a jab. Uh, really good. And a nice, scrappy, chip-on-his-shoulder attitude. I liked it. I like Justin Ledet. What is your expectation about Marcin Held's debut against Sanchez? I can't wait for it because, actually, I spoke to Diego about this, and his attitude was, you know... Um, he just thought that like the way in which he was training to strike, he's like, he, he made a point. He's like, in wrestling, it's go, 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 go. And you're snapping and you're pulling and you're faking your shot and you have this like aggressive energy. And in striking, you got to be a little bit looser. You know, you have to be focused and tense, but you have to be looser to let things go so you can see things. And, and wrestling is a little bit, the wrestling is very, very technical, but it's a little bit instinctual too. That's why there's so much like repetition of things. And he feels like if he's getting out of that grinding attitude, he loses what, what makes him special. And so um, he feels like with Held, he knows Held's basically going to want to go to the ground with him. He just feels like he'll be able to let himself do what he's naturally good at. But that also means that Held is going to be able to do the things he's naturally good at. I'm expecting something of a stalemate. I'm expecting something of Held putting Diego in compromising situations, Diego getting out, moving to side control, separating, and then it happening over and over again. Diego, Diego getting held back and forcing held into uncomfortable situations. People forget, man, Diego Sanchez is one of those guys who, I remember, um, who told me this once? It was, um, oh, it was uh, Mike Fowler. Mike Fowler, uh, you guys remember Mike Fowler back from 10 years ago. was like a big guy in the jiu-jitsu world. He used to say that, like, Diego Sanchez was one of the best guys who could do, uh, who had, a, for MMA purposes, could do really good guard passing when he mixed in ground and pound. And, you know, and, and, um, and Mike Fowler had like very good has has very good jujitsu. Uh, who would you like to see the Korean zombie fight? BJ Penn. I thought that was such a good idea on his part. BJ Penn. Should Kayla Harrison keep her new manager away from Twitter? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, okay. Ferguson RDA, who's going to win the pressure battle and establish striking dominance first? Well, we know what RDA is going to do. He's going to try and walk him down. The question is what Ferguson's going to do, and I don't know what the answer to that is. He's going to try wild kicks. He's going to try, you know, darces from front headlocks. He's going to try dropping for ankle locks. He's going to, I mean, he's going to do everything. It's going to be crazy. I cannot wait to see that fight. And if I checked, what was the betting line on that last time I... Check. I saw Ferguson at like a plus 120. Excuse me, that's UFC Fight Night 98. Yeah, here's the line on that. This is about right. Minus 150 for Dos Anjos, plus 130, plus 125-ish, 120-ish for uh, Tony Ferguson. That sounds about right to me. That's craziness, man. That, that fight is like, who's the more technical one? Uh, RDA. Who is the guy who has a lot of creativity and sort of chaotic ability to make a fight change an instant um who has that in their skill set it's obviously tony ferguson and tony ferguson has like you know is a good finisher too right like that's a sick fight man i cannot wait for that one uh let's see 
What do you think about Eddie Bravo adding palm strikes to EBI in 2017? I don't have a comment on it until I see how it works out and what the rules are and how it looks as they try it, but I'm intrigued by it a lot. Another guy who I want to talk to about this is Javier Vasquez, who has like a strike-based system of jiu-jitsu. Like it's jiu-jitsu, but it's one where being struck and striking is uh, a, a massive component, either for the street or for uh, MMA purposes. I want to see, I want to see what that looks like. Sometimes Rogan's bias when commentating is worse than Goldberg's stupidity. Yep. Well, guys, people have their own perspective on the world. And at parts, it's going to seem very palatable to you. And at other parts, it's not going to seem very palatable to you. So I'm not sure what to say. But, um, I mean, that's that's what you get with Joe Rogan. You don't want Joe Rogan to just toe the line down the middle. You want him to be fair. But you want to hear what Joe Rogan has to say. And that means it's inevitably going to be wherever it takes you. Have you listened to UFC Unfiltered? No. Fighter and the Kid? Yes. How do you compare them? I don't. Uh, have you heard of Lyle McDonald's forums for powerlifting? No. By the way, got to give a shout out if I can. Um, if you don't follow him on YouTube, if you don't subscribe to him on YouTube, you need to. Pete Rubish. Pete Rubish is going to compete, I think, on the 5th at the Reebok Record Breakers powerlifting event. And he was trying to go for a 1,000-pound deadlift. It looks like he's not going to get there if training is any indication. But he's now trying to go for a 2,100 uh, raw total, which you may say is, well, other guys have hit a 2,100 raw total, although that's obviously very high. Right. Pete Rubish is 240 pounds. For a guy to be hitting a 2,100 raw total at 240 pounds is crazy. Crazy. Uh, that is extremely good. So shout outs to Pete Rubish who watches MMA fighting videos and is an awesome guy and will communicate with you in the uh, powerlifting forums on Reddit. With Halla Gracie signing to Bellator, what are the chances he uses the song G and a G as the walkout music? If there's a God. Will MMA fighting be in Belfast? I don't know. It's a good question. Look, if Bigfoot wins his next fight in Russia, do you think Fedor's management tries to set him up in a rematch? Probably. By the way, Luke, my two-year-old phone has specs that put many brand new phones to shame. Sounds like a good phone. Uh... Any opinion on Tim Kennedy's association with Alex Jones and how that might hurt or his MMA image? I don't think most people care. Uh, definitely have to address McGregor at the Bernabeu rumors. The Santiago Bernabeu is where the greatest team in the world plays, a.k.a. Uh, Real Madrid. And apparently, um, old Perez down there is interested in hosting a McGregor fight at the Bernabeu, which I think can see 80,000 plus. Now, how that would work for a fight, I don't know. It's a soccer stadium, but um, it is a hollowed cathedral to the greatest <laughs> to the greatest team in the world, and it would be incredible to uh, put Conor McGregor there. I have to say, Madrid is one of my favorite cities in the world. Truly, everyone, if you go to if you're ever lucky enough to go to Spain, even people in Madrid will tell you they like Barcelona better, but not me, man. I thought Madrid was like, I mean, close to about the perfect city for me. Um. Has Habib's chin ever been tested, and who's the best striker he's faced in his career? Maybe RDA, but RDA wasn't necessarily that guy back then. Um, 
tested as in, I mean, he's been struck, but he's never been like, he's no one's ever really put it on him. So this is why a potential fight with Michael Johnson is kind of intriguing. Although Johnson has not quite the wrestling that we think he might need, but nevertheless, um, the, the, most guys are so worried about his takedowns. They can't really let their hands go. We need someone who doesn't really care, you know? Uh, Good question here that I missed. Do you see anyone taking action for the fighters' rights with USADA? How would that ball start rolling? If, if they get together in a collective group and they work out an arrangement with USADA, whatever that arrangement is, you know, is the arrangement that those groups agree to. But to me, having what is happening forced on them, much like the Reebok deal and much like everything else, I find to be uh, abhorrent. But that's just me, I suspect. That's the way it feels sometimes. All right. Uh, guys, I have to go. Um, if the stream went down, I apologize. Uh, it, but it's back up now. I think it's working now. So, um, thank you so much for watching. Uh, you guys are great. I really appreciate it. You can catch my show today in about an hour and a half. I got Luke Rockhold and Ryan Bader on, so that should be fun. Um, but like this video, uh, you can subscribe on, um, uh, iTunes.com slash promotional practice, or of course on SoundCloud at the Luke Thomas, but whatever you do, you're a gem, you're a star. You watch this. I really appreciate it. I'll be back next week. And until that time, uh, let me get this ready. Here we go. Here we go. Stay frosty. <laughs>